Welcome to Medic Class Citizen HP. Each episode will feature someone who is a high performer in his or her field. In this series, we investigate the traits, characteristics, work ethic, and drive required to be a high performer. Our guests may or may not be within EMS, but in these conversations, we identify parallels of their success and the success of a high performing EMS professional. We hope these conversations will inspire you as much as they do us. All right, everybody, welcome back to Medic Class Citizen HP, where we are going to dive in to the high performance of Ginger Locke. Uh, but this discussion primarily focuses on her high performance as an EMS educator, primarily in the initial education realm. Ginger serves as an associate professor in EMS professions at Austin Community College in Austin, Texas, where she has served since August of 2005. Uh, Ginger is also the creator of a very popular podcast, which I know all of you have heard, Medic Mindset. Uh, you can find Medic Mindset on all major podcast platforms, and you can also find more information about Medic Mindset at www.medicmindset.com. Ginger received her bachelor's degree from the University of Georgia Franklin College of Arts and Science uh, with a focus in sociology, which we do talk about in this episode. And she also has tenure as a paramedic at, from Marble Falls area in Marble Falls, Texas. So without any further ado, we hope you enjoy the conversation. So, well, thank you again for taking the time to come back, especially on a Saturday. Yeah. Um, just to kind of recap, we wanted to talk about high performers in this series. And uh, as, as we believe, I don't know if you will admit this, but you are very much so viewed as a very high performing EMS educator. So we kind of wanted to dive in and see what made you tick. See, see what kind of what's in the psyche of Ginger Locke. Let's do it. I don't, I, uh, I look forward to hearing what I say. I have no idea what I'm going to say. <laughs> We'll see what I, comes out. I look forward to hearing what I say. <laughs> be a surprise to all of us. <laughs> so when did you know that you wanted to become an EMS educator? Well, I can say that I didn't think I wanted to be an EMS educator ever when I entered EMS. Um, and when I was in the field, really didn't think about that. I didn't think um, I'd be good at that. And, uh, the department chair at the program where I graduated, he invited me to apply to teach. And at the time he hit me at a really good time because I was tired, you know, tired of working in the field, the grind and mm. um, had some young kids and the idea of being home every night, it, it um, persuaded me to apply. And, and I would say the first couple of years, I didn't think I was going to keep doing it. I kind of thought of it as I'm going to do this for a while while I've got small kids and then think about what do I want to do next, you know, nursing mm. or move EMS departments or something like that. I, I thought it'd be a very temporary thing, yeah. uh, you know, three years tops. And I would say it was a year around year two or three that I uh, finally felt inspired by it. I felt um, inspired to continue. Mm. Was it a bit overwhelming to start off with, like switching from the truck world to the EMS educator world? It really was. It was um, having to relearn a lot of the kind of academic side that I had lost. You know, I, I think I came out of paramedic school knowing those things. Um, but if you don't see all these 
or you don't know you're seeing all these like endocrine disorders, neuro disorders and toxidromes and all these things. If you don't see them regularly, you just kind of lose all that. So I had to study a lot for and yeah. prep, prep a lot to, to kind of um, teach that stuff. And, and honestly, still, if I'm not teaching a certain topic, you know, every semester, I get that kind of knowledge decay over time. Yeah. And what, thank you. Go ahead, Jason. No, what was your biggest, like, what was your biggest surprise then as you became an instructor, you know, as you were, had been sitting there as a student, you know, I think sure every student says, boy, if I was in charge of this class, this is what I would do because mm -hmm. students know everything. <laughs> but when you finally got to that point, what was kind of the biggest surprise? Mm, so many surprises. It's hard to remember because it's 15 years ago, but I remember as a student, not understanding why we learned the skills the way we did. We, uh, the program where I teach, and it was the same program where I went to school, and they teach us skills in a very like slow, methodical manner with these task analyses, and we go through it step by step by step, and it's really tedious. And as a student, I was like, I did not see the value of that. Mm. Um, and and once I started teaching and could see like the quick eureka point and the quick kind of competence that students could get by doing it that way. So I realized we were, it was right um, fr from the other side of the table. Mm. Did you kind of feed off of those light bulb moments, so to speak, like oh, as they, yeah. as they gain momentum, you would too? Yeah, that's what, that is how it became. That's when I got inspired mm. and I, I have this theory about passion and you know, the, there's like this idea, this concept of like, find your passion, right? And we tell teenagers and 20 year olds like, well, you'll, f you'll find your passion. And I thought I was just kind of like waiting and waiting, you know, where's my passion. And what I figured out was because this job, I kind of just fell into it. It was, it, it wasn't really, I didn't seek it out. I just kind of, it kind of rolled in that direction. I found myself in this position. Um, once I got mastery over it, once I got good at it is when I realized like, oh, this feels, this feels darn good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point because, and that's, uh, I think that's a good lesson for beginning EMS educators to mm -hmm. keep in mind that it will get better. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. How, and now when you went to college, your major, what, was it sociology or psychology? What was your major again? It was in sociology. Sociology. Yeah. That's right. How, how did that, did it really influence you as an EMS educator? And also, uh, did, did you benefit from that? Did your relationship with your students benefit from that um, as an EMS educator? I think in those early years, it didn't. I had, you know, I got that bachelor's degree, went to paramedic school, went and practiced for a while. When I came back, those concepts weren't really on the forefront of my mind. And I had, th I had these kind of theories about what it took to be a good paramedic. Uh, just having been fresh out of the field, I thought I knew exactly like what a paramedic needed to look like. And, and I don't mean physically look like, but what that kind of style should look like. And what I learned and got very humbled early on is I thought I could pick out the students that would, would be successful. I thought I knew on day one, I was like, eh, yeah, they're going to have trouble or these guys are going to just soar through it. And they totally proved me wrong on both fronts. And it brought me back to that sociology stuff of thinking about the social determinants of things. So in, you know, in healthcare, we think about social determinants of health. I think we can in education too. So I work at a community college. So we get a really diverse, diverse uh, student population 
and they all have different demographics, different social kind of factors. Some have dependents, some don't. Some have a job, some don't. I think those things play more into it as far as what all they're managing. Uh, and so it brought me back to those sociological concepts of like it's really our kind of social standing or where we are, all these external factors mm. that play into so many things more than our own personal like, um, you know, psychology. Yeah, and I don't want to, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't want to throw any spoilers out there, but I do want to talk about one of your recent episodes um, about feedback from your podcast. You know, you you kind of speak about that in the episode when you discuss that you really don't know what's going on in that student's life. And so having that background, I imagine probably prepared you to have some of those conversations. Yeah. Well, let me, let me go to the, you know, I think the, the, uh, the psychology and sociology, um, you know, I think in, in a lot of, uh, people that maybe just don't understand it very well, end up kind of writing it off as subjective, um, or kind of a little bit hokey, where have you seen, um, I mean, let's, let's kind of go to your, your experience with either other instructors or other programs that kind of just have a strict one way. Mm. It doesn't matter what class comes in because we have our curriculum, we have our outline, we have our syllabus and I can teach the same 20 people this year versus next year versus next okay. year, the exact same way. Where have you kind of seen that? Uh, kind of pitfall without understanding the individual classes and individual students? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think, you know, the individual psychology of each student and their own like cultural background and things like that plays in big. And, you know, it's called differentiated learning. You've got to kind of every student gets a customized experience. Um, and what I've really noticed is that groups of students have a whole personality. It's like one semester, they'll all be like extroverted and loud. The next semester, it's like they're, they're quieter. I'm, I'm doing something similar. And so once I start realizing the personality of that group and their, it seems like gr their group dynamics actually play a lot more in the classroom than I think educators realize. We, we think we're the center of the show when in reality, like <laughs> they've got, they've got a lot of things going on in their own dynamics. Um, so I start kind of just reading the room and figuring out, you know, how does this group want to interact with me, right? So some want to have more dialogue, some want to hold up a whiteboard, some want to do more independent work, some some groups love to like partner off. Um, so you just start realizing what engages them the most. Um, and it, it does, I'm constantly pivoting kind of day to day mm. until I can figure out what is it that this group makes them feel the most comfortable in the classroom. Awesome. What was it now that you have some ground under your feet as far you have a lot of ground under your feet as far as initial education, <clears throat> is there anything that has made you stay more focused on being an initial educator versus pursuing being a continuing education uh, educator? They're two very different things, aren't they? Mm -hmm. um, I think it comes back to that mastery. I think I know how to do this one. And I, it's like, I would have to go over a whole nother hump to figure out where practicing medics are. Like I understand where an entry kind of brand new student is um, cognitively. I know what they know. Whereas in the mm. field, if I had a group of medics come into my classroom, I'd be like, man, where do I start? Like, who's my audience? What do they know? Where do I pick off? Where, where do I pick up and start building from kind of their baseline? Um, continuing education is kind of intimidating because you're mm -hmm. it's more of like, it's more peers, right? Like, um, they know what you don't know. And um, 
And with initial ed, I certainly let them know when I don't know, like full stop, because they'll start asking me questions, you know, about like recently in trauma, we were working on tourniquets and they wanted to talk about blood admin. I'm like, hang on, hang on. Like, let's do tourniquets first. Let's do these BLS things first. And I think it's those, that core curriculum that I'm the most comfortable with this, you know, when new things come out, like blood administration, I've got, I've got to learn first. I've, I've got to spend a, honestly a good bit of time learning and catching up. That's a great point. That's a great point. Um, so let's kind of shift gears and talk about, um, your students, you know, walk us through your relationships with your students. Uh, when do you initially get introduced to them? So this one's kind of interesting. Um, I used to meet them on their first day or their first week. I would be assigned to a lab um, and help them with psychomotor skills. And I still do that. Only now something's kind of changed in that because I've been podcasting for six years now, there's usually one or two that have heard of the podcast. Hmm. And that opens up. Um, they and, and because of that, they know me. They know my personality, my values. And they immediately know like, oh, that's Ginger. She's a safe person. Like I've heard her talk like really kindly, really humanely about education, about, about healthcare. Um, so that is sometimes kind of the icebreaker. And um, because of, you know, one or two students know about the podcast, it carries a reputation and not a reputation of expertise. I'm talking about a reputation of being like a very kind person. And so that a lot of them start to figure that out early on and it, the news spreads like, Oh, she's, she's not an asshole. <laughs> awesome. So does that kind of bridge into, um, gaining their trust, so to speak? Yeah. I think they walk in pretty early and knowing like they know a lot of, more about me than I know about them on that first day. Right. So, yeah. um, but for the ones that don't know me or, or have never heard me, um, speak on any of these topics, um, I think I spend a lot of time just listening and I take a pretty, I, I make mm -hmm. myself pretty small. Honestly, I think a lot of educators think they have to come into the classroom and be this big sage on the stage and <laughs> dynamic and interesting. And, um, I prefer to in those first couple of labs because I'm not lecturing, it's kind of that perfect environment to just make it about them and, mm -hmm. and get to know them. And like we were talking about earlier, like kind of read them early of like, Oh, how do they want to be communicated to? Right. Having taught for so many years now, um, how important uh, are the intangibles? I mean, obviously, um, you know, you study well, you study a lot, you know your stuff. The information that you're presenting is, you know, I'm sure of the highest order um, academic uh, and whatnot. But how much does your passion um and kind of your personality come out to your students and what have you seen kind of as the years have gone by, um, how important is that kind of pouring into students and kind of, um, letting them catch that passion, uh, and how, what kind of, what kind of career does that set them out on, not just on the information, but just kind of on, um, how your personality is maybe caught theirs, uh, and you know, they speak to, uh, what, what kind of medic they are. Do, do you think that kind of, does, does that, uh, create lifelong learners? Does that create, uh, you know, more staying power? How important is that? Yeah, I think it's, um, really important, you know, you think about the thinking series on medic mindset. Um, in that series, I talk to people that know a lot more about me, right? It's usually, um, physicians talking about 
how they do assessments and how they think about chief complaints. And you hear me in those episodes kind of having these moments of like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. So that um, they can certainly, I'm modeling that kind of concept of continued learning. And and many of us have that philosophy that a lot of these students will come in and they have a family member or a kid or somebody with some special or unique kind of chronic disease that they, they're the experts on that. We, we know a lot less. So Mm. Um, we, we definitely are not shy. We, there's a lot of humility, I think, in our department, not shy to like, just let them shine when they know more than we do about, about certain topics. Um, yeah, Jason, did that get to all your, did that get to all your questions? Yeah. Yeah. I know it was kind of a long, it was kind of a long Mm -hmm. question. I, I think that's just something that we're, that we miss, not just in, um, EMS education, in in general and you know unfortunately i think uh, in ems ems education we're so driven by content and outcomes that we com- you know we talk about the effective type stuff but because it's difficult to measure and often it's not measured immediately um you know like a like a a written exam that um i don't think we put as much time and effort into that and you know the times that i have seen people come back and say you know i I got excited about this because you got excited about it that Mm -hmm. you know at the time Mm -hmm. i'm not necessarily thinking about that but you know i think probably everyone thinks back to a mentor or somebody that had poured into them or something where the light bulb went off it was because they kind of caught that passion you know we can get information anywhere right Um, i don't have to get that from a specific person um but to kind of get kind of get that subjective side, you know, can really make a difference, I think. It really can. And as as you're talking, I was thinking about that I go to clinical with them. So I think this is another key link. Uh, In second semester, I precept students two at a time at the ER trauma center, and they get to see me very early on, you know, handling what quote unquote difficult patients and see what customer service can look like from me um, pretty early on. And even in the classroom, right? I I think of my students as customers and a lot of educators don't look at it that way, but I am all about, um, I tell them very early on, if you need some type of accommodation, extension, exception, like talk to me. There's absolutely zero reason if, if a student needs some type of um, assistance, whether it be time or extended time or something like that, I can't give it to them, right? I just want them to learn. I don't actually, you know, I don't need to create these false kind of barriers. And th- there's a lot of these barriers um, that we can really question. Why are we doing it that way? Mm-hmm. Um, I will say this. I'm all about fairness, too. So if I give, you know, an exception for one student, the whole class will get that exception, right? That you, is You have to. Yeah. Yeah. And both of you, this is what I really love about this conversation is both of you are mentioning things and heading in towards a a direction of discussing leadership, essentially. You know, Jason's mentioning mentorship. You are uh, mentioning guiding them and supporting them and being humble. How much of a leadership role does an EMS educator actually have? You know, because the outside perception, somebody who is not involved in EMS education, you know, they probably just think back to their EMS instructor and they think, well, how hard is it just to stand up there and lecture? Mm-hmm. You know, how hard read, is it to read slides, right? Reading yeah. slides. How much of a leadership role do you think um, EMS educators actually have, whether they know it or not? Well, I think some people are reading slides and they probably aren't being leaders. Um, <laughs> Correct. I came home from uh, school the other day and I was exhausted and I knew the exhaustion came from leading all day long. 
right? I, I knew that I was not just um, kind of sitting back and just doing my thing. I knew I was actively managing the experience for them, just like you would run a call. It is so similar when you've got family present and firefighters and law enforcement's there and it all falls on you to orchestrate that. I feel like educators do that in the classroom as well. So I, I think we're leaders in the sense that as in initial ed, we're initially indoctrinating them to the profession. We've got, you know, um, some of them are already working in EMS, so they have some ideas about what it looks like. But for those that are completely naive to the profession, we're certainly, um, we're their first view of what does a paramedic look like. Um, so I think we're leading in within the profession, but then we're just leading tiny groups in the, you know, in an educational setting as well. It's exhausting. Yeah, it really is. And what about not even just our students, but the stakeholders in the community within our service areas, like EMS education service areas, such as uh, trauma committees, cardiac arrest committees, things like that. Do EMS educators have a responsibility to be part of those and actually uh, try to influence people in those situations? Yeah, I think we need to be influencing there because we know what they're being taught. We know what the current curriculum is. We know what we're doing and we need to be part of that group to make sure everything's lining up and not only be leading there, but receiving information as well. Mm. So we, we yeah. can pivot on our end. Yeah. And, and as we talk about, you know, folks who aren't involved, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, or if you've ever had a friend that call you up and say, you know, we miss you over here at this service, but I guess, you know, you're enjoying that, uh, that teaching job because you know, those who can do and those who cannot teach. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten that. <laughs> yeah. Mostly from, mostly from students mm. being, being funny. Yeah. Yeah. I've got so it. From they're curious. They're curious why I'm not in the field anymore. And that's right. You know, sometimes they'll poke at me, but I think really they want to know, you know, why are you doing this? Right. Or do what quali what qualifies you to do this? You know, mm. I think they're kind of seeking a little bit of my backstory when they do that. It's like, yeah. what, are you, what are you doing? Like you're young enough to still be in the field. Yeah. And Jason has spoken before on that. And I, I'm kind of hoping that he'll hop in. I'm kind of prodding him here. But whenever he talks about, um, sure, the first half of that, that statement could be true, those who can do. But one thing that I've heard Jason say is that those who understand teach. Mm, I like that. Mm. Yeah, I was curious what you would say, Jason. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, I gave a talk on that uh, a couple years ago, but, but let me go back to, uh, you know, why people asking why you do it. You know, I think you're in a, you're in a unique situation. I think Brandon's in a unique situation. Um, but how many, uh, especially in-house programs do you see that? Well, why'd you become an instructor? Um, because it's off 24 hour shifts, it's five days a week and I need it to get promoted. No qualifications to, to be able to teach. Uh, it's just because, uh, you know, you missed the last meeting. So you got, uh, <laughs> to become now the lead instructor, you know, and that's frustrating on a lot of parts because, you know, a lot of programs we work with, it's, you know, every year, every semester, you know, you're dealing with a new lead instructor. Um, so, you know, I think that it is there, there, this statement may not be too far off for some places. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know, you know, I don't know how, you know, everything is the services are also unique and, and situations are unique, you know, especially in this, uh, you know, in this day and age where, you know, um, 
staffing is difficult. So it really sometimes does become, we have to have somebody fill it. So who right. is the most qualified? Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you see that in your area? Are you able to be pretty choosy, uh, to who your, uh, instructors, only instructors, but preceptors as well? Mm. Mm. Yeah, we could talk the preceptor answer. I think will be probably the most interesting. As far as our full-time faculty, we have actually an open position right now. We have 11 applicants for the one position. Wow. We feel like we have a really, wow. we feel like we have a really strong pool. Um, so we have an adjunct pool. Um, most, most of them are still working in the field. They're not full-time educators. So they usually are still in the field, uh, which is great. They're a great resource. And so we often will pull from them, right? They, they adjunct for many years. And then when they kind of are feeling like they're getting to the end of their field time, they'll come over to full-time. Um, so we, we have a lot of, uh, I feel like we've got it covered as far as having enough people interested that have some edu- educational background to teach mm-hmm. full-time. The preceptor question is a really great one. And, and one that I've kind of been thinking a lot about lately, because I think our preceptors are sometimes put into those roles um, as they're trying to move through the kind of up, up the ladder, if you will, but it's not their kind of ultimate goal. Um, and I think they don't know how to do it. Why would they, right? They've many of them mm. not, they've not gotten any formal education. So a lot, a, a couple of the episodes I've been putting out recently, like finding feedback, um, I'm, I'm starting to want to kind of reach that group more of, of field preceptors because our students come back and they have such varied experiences, right? So some come back and they've had this great experience where they felt supported and they felt like the preceptor kind of met them exactly where they were and taught them some things, mm-hmm. you know, all the way to they were basically ignored the whole shift. Um, cool. It was just added work for the preceptor. Yeah. And you, in that episode, you share your experience with a preceptor that really mm. influenced you significantly. And whenever I was listening to it, it made me think of those preceptors that I had. There weren't many of them, <laughs> but you know, whenever you explained the promptness of the feedback, the quality of the feedback, things of that nature. And again, I don't want to spoil the episode. Everybody needs to go listen to it. Um, but it made me think of the preceptors who did take the time to do that and truly influenced me versus the preceptors who, like you just said, made me feel like, okay, well, I'm just going to picture you as the person of what not to do and, yeah. and how not to yeah. treat people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and any, anybody listening, it's, it's certainly not necessarily that person has a character flaw. It's just that they're probably overworked. They probably mm-hmm. didn't express they wanted mm-hmm. to be an educator. It just kind of got put on them, right? It's just more of a system problem. Mm-hmm. So before we move on to some of that other stuff on the feedback, I want to kind of throw a question out there that may be a little uh, provocative, but as we're talking about um, the importance of understanding students, the importance of getting uh, qualified instructors, not just able to deliver the information, because like we're saying, it's not necessarily just about the information. It's how you interact with students. Mm. Is it possible to get the same education online as it is in person. Go. Uh, you ready? Go. I love that question. Um, <laughs> because Set I, the timer for three hours and then you can stop talking. I think it is possible to do all of the lecture component online with the caveat of I don't think it should be pre-recorded lectures. It still has to be back and forth. Right? A pre-recorded lecture 
Um, my lecture style is not just to like tell you everything I know. It's to tell you a few things, see what questions you have about that. I know the remaining things I want to say, but I'm going to pick from that bank of remaining things I want to teach, remaining learning objectives based on what you've said. What are you interested in in this moment? Now that we know this much, you're coming back at me with this question. Oh, I'm going to pick this over here. And it's not perfectly linear. Um, it's a lot of uh, customized. Every every lecture looks different. And I ran into this recently over COVID. Our our department chair wanted us to make these pre-recorded lectures. I'm like, I haven't taught that way in a decade, right? Where mm -hmm. I just like download everything I know. I mean, anybody can just, as you guys said, like can just read, listen to an audio book of somebody reading their textbook. That's um, not educating, that's lecturing. So uh, the online experience still has to engage the learner somehow in a real time uh, experience. It can be done through Zoom though. It can be done virtually. I'm just not a big fan of the pre-recorded lecture. It's interesting because we have a group right now in first semester who's only looking at pre-recorded lectures. And then it was like that's the thing we're beta testing where they come in at night to do skills. It's we're trying to get more students. Oh, wow. Hard time, honestly. We're having a hard time enrolling students. Um, they just aren't, you know, since the pandemic, we our numbers have dropped. So um, we created this evening class that's just lab. And then during the day or, you know, weekends around their work, they listen to these pre-recorded lectures. And they're actually didactically, they're doing amazing. They're doing really, really well. Really? Is, we've been like, wow. So for those students, they don't know the difference. They've never sat in a lecture with me and done the kind of back and forth lecture style. They've only... Hmm. They don't know the difference. So I don't, you know, I don't know what they think because they haven't had that. Wow. That's cool. But they're doing well, which is an interesting experiment for us. Do you still do testing in person? We use a uh, lockdown browser thing. Yeah. Like if someone's like <laughs> cyber stalking you while you take yeah. the test. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> you put your pupils back on that screen. <laughs> 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 well, so let me ask you, and kind of as we segue into the feedback, obviously there's different forms of feedback, and we often think that feedback is to the learner or to the per the person who is uh, performing a skill or an assessment or a simulation. But instructors need a lot of feedback. Yes. Um, do you do you get the same? You know, what kind of feedback do you look for in the ty different types of platforms that you use to teach? feedback from my students. What am I looking for? Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because just last week I asked my students after we did a simulation, okay, like now your turn, like tell me how can we make this better for you or for the next group that came through? And, and they looked at me like, no one, no one's ever asked, asked us that. Like, <laughs> and honestly, for me, it's just because I'm being deliberate right now with feedback. It's not probably something I've been great at over the years as well. But in that, that feedback talk that I did and all the kind of studying I've done about it, a key indicator of a culture of feedback, a key indicator of when you know your department has a positive, like healthy feedback going on is when the, the feedback goes from kind of up the hierarchy, right? When you're able to give feedback to your uppers. And so I'm just trying to do that more. Mm. Uh, what I want to hear from them is that they feel comfy and able to learn, right? That's the main thing. And that they have the, the resources they need to, to learn. How granular do you get with that? I, it's pretty open for them to tell me what they need. I'm, I've, I don't think I've done a good job yet of asking them, is this good? Like it's more of an open-ended question than okay. closed-ended. Yeah. Gotcha. So it's, they get, they get granular. Cool. Good. Yeah. I'm not good. asking for them to be, but they'll tell me, yeah, that mannequin, 
Mm. You know, the, the BP doesn't work on that mannequin and it made me get out of the high fidelity simulation. I realized that, that was just in the classroom. And so they, they tell us the specifics of what they need. Mm. Now on that note of, of high fidelity situations and simulation, what is your strategy to providing effective feedback at the end? Yeah. The, yes. The, yeah. The debr like the debriefing. debriefing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These, these strategies aren't, aren't mine. These are just kind of known strategies of how to debrief and kind of the first rule of debriefing is to listen first. So you've seen all these actions, you've observed them for a 20 minute sim maybe, but you don't yet know what those actions mean. I know I saw you not BVM the patient, but now I need to just, I need to hear your thought process about why you didn't, right? Because there's probably five options, right? Was it because you forgot? Was it because you didn't think the patient needed it? Was it because you didn't know where the BVM was? Was it because there wasn't a BVM? Right? There are all these options. And so the first step of debriefing is listening and, and finding out what their frame is. So you come with this hypothesis. I saw you not BVMing this patient that looked like they were in respiratory failure. Um, I wondered if it was because, you know, you forgot, you know, that's my, my hypothesis. What, what was, what were you thinking about uh, throughout the call that, that made you do that and mm. just get, and so instead of taking the data and just interpreting it immediately, we've got the data. Now I need more, a lot more info. It's like trying to read someone's chart and you think you know how the call went. You don't. Like you know what happened on the call, but you have no idea about the thought process behind what, what happened. Has that been an evolution for you to start looking at? Like, I mean, obviously this is something, you know, and I don't know if this is something new for you actually of, of this feedback, but this is something that obviously, um, you know, you just did a podcast on, you've been reading about what, what has kind of brought you to this point to, to where you've arrived at this specific type of feedback you're doing? I didn't know I was doing it wrong for a long time. And I went and taught at a conference with a pre-conference course and it was for educators. And I was only teaching one little module, uh, but other educators were teaching other parts. And Ashley Liebig, a nurse here for Starflight, she does tons of debriefing of simulation mm. and has studied it extensively and worked with like Scott Weingart and all these uh, she has really studied it and she gave a lecture on it and I was like listening and like, Oh my God, I've been doing it. I've been doing it very wrong. <laughs> I learned, I learned at a conference from a peer, right? A decade into doing it, I realized, you know, I was doing, I'd been doing it wrong. But usually I would, I would just watch the SIM, tell them my feedback and then it was over. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I learned, Oh, I've got to like, it's gotta be more of a dialogue. Yeah. And and again, I'm, we're not taking from the episode too much. I discuss, you just said peer feedback, how, which one do you think is more impactful? Do you think it's more impactful to hear from a QA, QI officer at the department or from your instructor, or is it more impactful to hear from a peer? Yeah, I think for working paramedics, it's probably a peer or a supervisor that <laughs> was on the actual call and knows mm. the more, the nuances of what went on. Uh, QA has a very tough job because they're trying to interpret this data with very limited info. If, if, mm -hmm. if you're just looking at charts for QA, um, you are probably able to look at the whole system. Like what percentage of calls did we get a blood sugar on where it was indicated like a clinical impression stroke, right? We want that to be 100%. So you can look at the whole system and provide feedback about how the system's working. But the individual medic I really feel like it needs to be someone that has a pretty first-hand account or, you know, a second-hand account. You're right there watching um, and present for it. So I think peer, I think we're, that is the future of feedback is really a lot more peer debriefing at the end of calls. Mm. 
We see this uh, in HEMS a lot, in helicopter EMS, aeromedical. They do a lot of safety checks before and after flights. And those conversations that are required, these required safety conversations, those trickle into clinical debriefs and clinical discussions that are really healthy exchange of feedback between peers. Now, when you say uh, some of the feedback you're doing, how much, um, you know, obviously we get the stuff on the calls and we can't record that stuff. Do, are you videoing all simulations and using that for feedback? No, um, I, I think there's a place for that, but it's, uh, it takes a lot of time for that because I've got to watch the video. I watch it. We watch mm. it together. Um, but I, I think there's a place for that. And I think there's a place I heard you say, Jason, you know, obviously not on real calls, but I do wonder if that might be the future you know, 20, 30 years where it's more normalized for video cameras to be everywhere. Um, I, I do wonder if we won't be using video footage for feedback for working paramedics. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar. Um, are you familiar with uh, Johari, the Johari window? Oh, that does sound familiar. It's like a firsthand point. So the Johari window there, so there's essentially like four boxes and it's, uh, the first is, uh, things that we both know about me. One, the, the, the second one is things I know about me, but you don't know Mm -hmm. things, Mm -hmm. you know, about me that I don't know. And then things that neither of us know. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering in simulation, especially with some of the video, stuff that people look at and re- and they have no idea that they actually do that. And then when they can actually see themselves do that, you know, that becomes something that, you know, everyone else goes, Oh yeah, we knew that about you. We knew that's how you acted or how you thought or how, you know, you did. And then once you get to see it, um, you know, you start making changes, you know, like watching game film and, you know, things like that. You, you get a different, uh, a different perspective. I didn't know if, if, uh, you know, you had any experience with kind of light bulb moments for people going, you know, um, you know, when they finally find out something like that's when the light bulb goes off. Like, you know, I know you've been saying that for a year now, but now that I get to see it and experience it in Mm. this situation, now all of a sudden it clicks for me. Yes, uh, you're reminding me of when I have done videoing of Sims and, and I let students watch. Um, they pick up on mostly little ticks, things that they do that they don't realize they're doing. Like one student, once they figured out the patient's name, would say the patient's name at the beginning of every question. <laughs> <laughs> like every, and they said the patient's name like 30 times on this call. And it was just like very unusual. It's kind of unorthodox. They thought they were doing good because they're using their name, um, but mm-hmm. it was like excessive and they <laughs> saw it in the video. So I, I said, we don't use it really for Sims. Uh, we do record some Sims that are for evaluation just in case um, if I'm grading it and the student says, no, I didn't do it that way. It's kind of like we have this inner rate of reliability where our medical director or another professor can look at it and kind of weigh in. But I have used video heavily every semester for discrete skills, for psychomotor skills. Because as you said, they can't see from all perspectives what they're doing, um, particularly with IV start. Their hands are mm. often in the, in the way. Uh, so I've started using a lot more video for that so they can see what they're doing from a different perspective. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for everything and for, for talking with us. Do you, uh, what do you... Well, first off, everybody needs to go and listen to the medic mindset episode, finding feedback. Um, we keep referencing it, uh, in this discussion, but you need to go and listen to it. Tell us about, uh, your, your newest drop, the thinking abdominal pain. 
Sure. Well, so give us one, give us a little trailer. A little trailer for this is it is the fifth or sorry the tenth episode in the series of where we look at chief complaints. This one's a, about abdominal pain. It's the third time I've had on one of my favorite guests, Dr. J.R. Pickett. He has his own podcast, so um, some people have heard of him. He's a medical director here in Austin. Uh, really dynamic guy, really interesting. Um, and he basically picks through, you know, when you, we hear the chief complaint, abdominal pain, what do we need to be worried about? What do we need to be fairly confident, uh, you know, and, and screening for real, you know, serious things? And how do we screen for those things? Physical exam. He talks a little bit about ultrasound, which I was excited about. Nice. Um, hit, yeah, and some history taking <laughs> goes with that. Just a good re good way to refresh, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so much better than sitting down and reading a textbook, sitting down and reading AMLS or, you know, any other initial education book for review purposes, um, sitting down and listening to you kind of pick his brain. It was, it was good. So, Glad you enjoyed it. You know, we yeah. teach, I, I know we need to wind down, but in paramedic school, we usually teach body systems. Mm -hmm. The thinking series is coming at it from the chief complaints, like mm -hmm. okay, this, and which is how we run calls. We think of first chief complaint, and now we need to pull in all these body systems. So it's, I think it's especially for the working paramedic who's already got that foundational knowledge, and now let's like mm. think about it in a different way. Nice, yeah, that's important. So what's next for Ginger? What's what's coming down the pipe for you? What's going on? So um, a couple of things. One, for Medic Mindset, you can now get CE for it for five bucks an episode. Uh, if you listen, you can go to Prodigy EMS, pay five bucks um, and get uh, CE for listening. Nice. Take, there's a little quiz that you have to take mm -hmm. and uh, get CE for that. CAPSI approved. Nice. Uh, yeah. I was really happy about that because. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, That's a big deal. Yeah. Thank you. A lot of people have asked, how can I get CE for this? Cause they've, yeah, we've had the same, we've had a lot of those same questions yeah. and especially how do you do it between States? So CAPC makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So essentially if you have a listener in Texas, but let's say if you have somebody listening from Georgia and they want to get those credits for listening to the abdominal pain episode, they can, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Sweet. Yep. Awesome. Go get it folks. Get it. Yeah. What's next though? Any conferences coming down? Any speaking engagements? Yes. So I'm going to be at a conference called FAST. It's from the company FlightBridge Ed, who does a lot of critical care and flight uh, medicine training. And I'm going to be talking about feedback there because it's my topic this, this year. It's what I'm nice. digging into. Uh, that's in Vegas in May. And nice. Yeah. That's the only, that's the only conference speaking <clears throat> I'm doing. I've kind of slowed my role on that. Pretty exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted, I want to just focus on the podcast. Awesome. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, any other sponsors you want to shout out to while we have you? Sure. So I simulate has been a longstanding, uh, sponsor and they've supported me from the, you know, very early on. And I, I thank them tremendously. I simulate makes the kind of iPad monitors that a lot of departments use. Uh, they simulated monitors, uh, using iPads. And I've got an, I've got another one coming, but we'll wait till it announces on, oh, the, on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gangsta. <laughs> you have to listen to the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, very cool. Well, Ginger, thank you so much. Hugs from Georgia. You're yep, the best. Same, same. Y'all are uh, so fun. Y'all are the best. Very fun. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll pay you later. <laughs> All right. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. 
Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.